crossover edition of Locked On Cougars and Locked On Ducks, talking with Spencer McLaughlin from Locked On Ducks. We're going to talk a lot about the Oregon Ducks versus the BYU Cougars. Got a lot to get into because I think this is a very interesting matchup. All that and more on today's edition of Locked On Cougars. You are Locked On Cougars, your daily podcast on the BYU Cougars, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, everybody? I'm Jake Hatch, your host here on Locked On Cougars, your resident BYU insider. I work for the Zone Sports Network in Salt Lake City, Utah, as the executive producer of DJ and PK in the morning. But I am very excited to welcome in Spencer McLaughlin from Locked On Ducks. You can see his little bio right below him right there. Uh, Spencer, what's up, my man? Uh, not much. I just uh, showed that I'm so not a weatherman. I, you know, I thought I, I thought I had it down, and then I looked, and I was like, no, it's it's that side, not that side. That's but, all right. Yeah, it's 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 great to be here with you, Jake, and uh, hello to all the BYU fans out there. Uh, real quick, Spencer, can you point down to like the corner for me? Like, kind of just continue the like. I want to encourage people down in that so other corner for you. Point to point the other way. There's a little button right there on our YouTube channel. Hit that. Subscribe to the show. It's really simple. And Spencer, you, you've been through this. You do your show on YouTube as well. Subscribe, hit that follow button, like the show, comment on the show, do all the stuff that helps us build this audience. It's actually a lot of fun to have been on YouTube as long as we have. I'm almost two months in in my own right. I don't know how long you've been doing it, Spencer, but YouTube's a whole new venture. I can tell you yeah, that it much. Is. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, you know, and it's it's a touch more work, but I tell you, it's it's so worth it. The engagement I get on there is great, and the, the traction to shows is awesome because if you know how to how to work YouTube's algorithms a little bit, you, you can get some people watching and listening and whatnot, and you, you can hop into the comments really easily. And anything that I say today, if you ever want to just, you know, Tell me that I'm an idiot. By all means, you you go ahead. Or if you want to say something nice, you can do that too. But you know, I'm I'm very I'm very open to uh to both. So YouTube comments, Smalls underscore fifty five is my Twitter handle. You see it down there on uh, on YouTube, and I gestured to the wrong corner again. So I'm just going to stop doing that. That's all right. All right. Uh, so we're going to have some fun today. We're going to talk a lot about the Oregon Ducks and the BYU Cougars. They're going to be in a week three matchup up there at Autzen Stadium. And Spencer, I want to start here with my first question for you. Dan Lanning takes over as the head coach for Oregon. And the whole deal with what happened with Mario Cristobal last year comes out after the fact that he was essentially shopping himself to Miami for some time during that season. And I think we kind of saw the team playing out the string in many ways down the stretch. But what has Dan Lanning brought to this program since taking over as the Ducks head coach? Well, there's a lot of things that you can look at when, when evaluating a head coach. But early in the tenure, all you have to go off of it is the way that the staff has been recruiting so far. And, and that was the first thing that we as Duck fans were looking at. What sort of staff is he going to put together? What, what's the identity going to be? What should we expect? You know, And it's still in the relatively early stages, but so far I don't know how much better of a start Dan Lanning could be off to in his tenure as the Oregon coach. Now he hasn't put a single product out there on, on the field. That's not against Oregon players. Of course we had the spring game, saw some great things there. If you want my recaps, all that you can check out the YouTube channel or wherever you're listening to the show on podcast right now. But basically what we've seen so far is Dan Lanning and 
you know, Tosh Lupoy, defensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham, the offensive coordinator, Matt Pallage, the DBs coach, Carlos Lachlan and, and Junior Adams, the running back and receiver coaches have picked up some major recruiting wins on, on the trail. And they have not been just guys who, you know, you look at and go, oh, yeah, those could be nice players. No, there have been some big time additions and they're, they're still big game hunting out there. And that's something that we're following very closely because that's the way that they're making their first impression. And I think there were a lot of question marks after the Mario Cristobal era came to an end of, well, how's Oregon going to recruit now? Because Cristobal and his staff were better at recruiting than they were anything else. And that was a huge boon to the program Four straight years. Now Oregon has claimed the PAC 12 recruiting crown. And that does matter though. You still have to, you know, uh, reflect the on field results sometime and, and sometimes and have the X's nose to, to back it up. But that's where you want your program to be. You want to bring in those sorts of players. But after he left, I think the question was, well, how's this next staff going to recruit? Because Cristobal and company recruited in ways that we've never seen before at Oregon. Chip Kelly was brilliant schematically on Saturdays. He wasn't a great recruiter. He still isn't. That's not what he likes to do. That's why he went to the NFL. And I think what Lanning and this staff have done so far is really put Oregon fans at ease from the sense of, okay, we're still waiting to see what it's going to be like on the field. We're going to wait and see, you know, how, how, how many games they're going to be able to win in the Pac-12 conference. But we know they're going to continue to recruit at a high level. You get look at guys like Josh Connerly, like Kyler Casper, Davey Uli. But, you know, two of those are offensive linemen. That was arguably the biggest recruiting question mark. Cristobal and Alex Mirabal leave. They brought in a bunch of offensive linemen, developed them really well. And Connerly was a guy who was considering Miami, decided to go to Oregon instead. And he's now the highest rated recruit in the class of 2022. And he was a very late commitment and Casper's class of 2023 reclassifies to this year. And, you know, you look at guys like Jaleel Florence who decommitted from the ducks, got down to Oregon and USC ultimately ended up choosing Oregon over the Trojans and Lincoln Riley. So there, there have just been a, a flurry of recruiting victories on the trail so far. And that, that's all that we can assess them on at this point in time. And in that sense, they're off to a really strong start. Who is the quarterback going to be in your mind? Bo Nix. I, okay. I, I think that there are, I know, I know that there are a lot of Duck fans who want to see Ty Thompson. I think the narrative is starting to shift a little bit after the spring game. Bo Nix didn't do anything incredible or sensational or spectacular in the spring game. Did have a couple of really nice deep balls, which Duck fans are missing after Anthony Brown king of the check down you, you could you could call him a season ago yeah, a little bit yeah uh, that's yeah that, that's something that Oregon fans are really looking to to bring back into the offense i mean we saw that you know it was actually possible to do so a season ago in terms of pushing the ball down the field but we just waited till the second half of the alamo bowl and we're down 30 to 3 to to start doing it but hey better late than never you know so he showed that he didn't do anything incredible he was 8 of 15 passing the ball a couple of long touchdowns a uh, couple or he had one interception as well. And it was a bad interception, but overall it is a new, it's a new offensive system with Kenny Dillingham and getting used to throwing with his receivers. But he, he showed in the spring game that he's going to be the starter. He, he showed enough, his poise, his arm strength, his legs, all of that is still there. I think poise is something he still has to work on, but the physical attributes are there. The experience is undeniable. And, you know, Ty Thompson, and Jay Butterfield, who are a couple of blue chip quarterback prospects. Thompson is the highest rated quarterback recruit in Oregon football history. So he's had a lot of hype since he came on campus. What he showed in that game is improvement from what we saw a season ago, but he's not ready. And you don't throw a guy into the fire 
the way that we would be doing in the first game at Georgia. It's a it's a road game. Like okay, it's in it's in Atlanta. That's like <laughs> saying, hey, we're gonna go to- come on now, Spencer. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. That's like saying, yeah, we're going to go play the ducks in Portland. It's yeah. a neutral site. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. So it's not somewhere where you want to have a guy go out and make his first start. Cause he, he's just clearly not ready. Some guys take a little bit longer to develop. He's clearly. So if I'm the staff looking at not just our best chance to win that game against Georgia and pull another early season relative upset, like we did with Ohio state a season ago, but also just long-term in 2022, who's going to give you the best chance to, to win the Pac-12 North, which doesn't totally matter anymore, but who's going to give you the best chance to get back to the championship game? The answer is Bo Nix. I do want to ask you about that divisionless uh, deal with the Pac-12. We'll get to that later in today's show, so we'll stick with the Ducks here for a moment, But because uh, you obviously also are the host of Locked On Pac-12. You do a really good job with that as well, so we'll get into that Thank a little you. bit later on. But I, I want to talk to you about the backfield one more time. The backfield, Travis Dye transfers out of the program. Anthony Brown was the second leading rusher from his quarterback spot. So who is going to be the backfield running mate for whoever? If it is Bo Nix, a quarterback, who's going to be his backfield running mate at running back? This is a legitimate question. And the default answer would be Byron Cardwell because after C.J. Verdell got hurt, it was Cardwell who backed up uh, Travis Dye last year, and he showed a lot of great things as a true freshman. He's got good speed. He's got a a nice amount of shiftiness between the tackles and in the secondary. He's a very patient runner and he has good vision. He has decent speed. Like he he can pull away from guys for long runs. I wouldn't call him as explosive of a runner. I think he takes a little bit longer to get going. His acceleration is not what I'd call exceptional. His jitterbug ability is also a little bit limited, but if he's your starting running back, you can run the ball effectively and he can be a 1000 yard rusher. There's no doubt about that. All right. I say that's the de- I say that's the yeah. default answer. Yeah, sorry, I had to think about what I was going to say next there for a second. I say that's the default answer because there's another guy who's in the mix for the starting running back position, and his name is Sean Dollars, and he's okay. been with Oregon for a yeah. couple of years. He has sustained several injuries, so we haven't seen a lot of him. But I think from a physical standpoint, you're looking at guys' physical characteristics. He has the best ones in the running back room. Carlos Lachlan, the running backs coach came over from Western Kentucky, brought a transfer from the Hilltoppers with him, Noah Whittington. They also added Bucky Irving, a true freshman standout who led Minnesota in all purpose yards a season ago. He's in the backfield. And then you've got four-star running back, Jordan James, who they flipped from uh, committing to Georgia originally to very late in his recruiting process. He decided to to come up to the ducks with, with Lanning and, and Carlos Lachlan as well. So, those are the five guys that are in the room and it's very up in the air. I think once you added Irving and Whittington, you kind of felt like Jordan James probably going to fall down the depth chart a little bit. And those guys would move up. I I would expect to see Irving more than Whittington because he is a little bit more proven in a bigger conference. But I, I think that you could very easily see a one, two punch and a pretty even carries even amount of carries kind of play the hot hand between Byron Cardwell and Sean dollars, because I think Card- I know that Cardwell has more experience and he's got, I think, the better vision and better patience. But if you're talking about who's the most explosive runner, in my eyes, it's Sean Dollars. Should be interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out. I also want to talk to you about a local connection to this program. Noah Sewell I played at Orem High School here in Utah. He screams to me, top 10 NFL draft pick. I think he's got one more season in Eugene. What more does he have to prove for Oregon defensively in your mind? 
Uh, he has to improve his his pass coverage ability. Okay. That's the biggest knock that you will see out of him if you read a draft profile. I haven't read any, but I got a hundred bucks that says that's the number one thing when you scroll down and say what he needs to get better on his pass coverage. But when you talk about run stopping and blitzing linebackers, I, I don't know if there's a better one in the country right now. I just there there could be there there might be one out there i just haven't seen him play based on the guys who you know are are coming back for college for college football this season in 2022 because you talk about a guy who can shed blocks who will who will hit running backs in the hole and drive them back there there's one play in particular that i think best exemplifies noah sewell's ability and it was against Ohio State a season ago. The Buckeyes are fourth and two. Is that like Oregon's forty-five or so? And they they hand it off to Travion Henderson on uh, just kind of like a backside trap read option. I actually thought um, C.J. Stroud made the wrong read. He should have just kept the ball. Probably picks up the first down. But the hole was there. The the hole was there, and the right guard for Ohio State couldn't quite get up to the second level because Sewell diagnosed the play, went over and filled the hole, met Henderson there, who's a big, bruising, physical back, and he just drove him backwards. And never he never came close to getting two yards when it looked like there was a pretty sizable hole. That's Noah Sewell in a nutshell. You combine that with the speed he's got going sideline to sideline. Also, he was Oregon's uh, second-leading sack player from a season ago. I believe he had four. Thibodeau finished with seven and a half. He's prolific blitzing because he's got great speed. He's physical and can track guys down. He just he, he does so many things well. But the, the pass coverage... I think he leaves something to be desired. Not somebody who, who's really good in a man-to-man situation on a tight end. That, that's not something I think he's really very capable of at, at this point in time. And in zone coverage, it's not like he's a total liability. But what I say, it, it's an abject strength. No, I, I think that's somewhere where he can certainly improve. But overall, I, I think he does project as a first-round linebacker. I, I don't know what else you, you really need there other than a little bit of refinement in, in pass coverage. But he has just been... Uh, such such a great player for Oregon's defense and the the few moments when he's you know banged up here and there and he's not on the field it's noticeable all right we're going to turn the tables here in just a moment let Spencer pepper me with some questions about BYU going into this matchup and as I said later on I want to talk a little more about Pac-12 in general we'll get to all that but real quick let's talk about our friends over at bet online of course partners with us here on the locked on podcast network they are the number one source for all of your betting needs and sports information needs uh, Spencer I'm sure you're aware of bet online you've probably checked out that website it's got Very everything so. it's got everything under the sun it feels like sports wise everything that you could ever want to bet every prop every sport every line it's all there you just have to go check it out I, I i'm fond of saying that you can probably find tiddlywinks odds probably on bet online <laughs> they've seemingly got everything I, I mean that so check it out my friends find all the latest odds news and sports developments including this year's basketball playoffs in the nba major league baseball scores fights and even next season's nfl futures it is your continued source for all of your sports wagering information from live betting to playoffs esports and more head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action available to you now that's betonline.net all courtesy of your friends at Bet Online, where the game starts. Thanks again for joining us here on Locked On Cougars, a crossover edition with Locked On Ducks and Spencer McLaughlin. I want to encourage you guys to make your next listen, our friends at the Locked On Sports Today podcast. It's got the biggest stories of the day, instant reactions, big game recaps, and of course, the most exciting part of the Spencer. I don't know how much, how often you listen. The take of the day, it's a can't miss. Uh, I, I'm sincere when I say that because I listen to it actually every day going into my radio job because that podcast actually helps me catch up on some of the other news topics. Maybe I missed the night before when I'm kind of reading up and watching other things. So 
So really cool thing. Check it out on YouTube, Odyssey app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Really, really fun product the Locked On Podcast Network has put out there. All right, Spencer, fire away. What do you want to know about the Cougars? How afraid do you think Oregon should be of BYU after they are the unofficial... 2021 Pac-12 South champions uh, from a season ago. Don't let certain fan bases in the Pac-12 hear you say that. Let's be very clear (laughs) about that, Spencer. But um, I think Oregon needs to be aware of BYU's prowess. This BYU team, funny enough, they actually may be in some ways a better team in 2022 than they were in 2021. Uh, Jaron Hall's got another season under his belt at quarterback. They do have to replace Tyler Algier at running back, but they feel like the Cal transfer uh, uh, Chris Brooks is going to come in and and fill that uh, spot fine. Uh, they got a very talented offensive line. The defense... Okay, there's some question marks there, but if you're Oregon, I'd be wary of the Cougars, and especially on offense. This could be a BYU offense that could rival what Zach Wilson did in 2020, and I'm serious about that. What would you say is the identifiable characteristic that's going to make BYU competitive in 2022? I think the biggest thing is something that Kalani Sitake is kind of, he wanted to instill during his time at BYU from the get-go is toughness. This is a program that he he has been all about making sure that teams will remember facing BYU because of how tough his team is. He wants his guys to be strong physically. They have a very... Um, they have a very much a type that they recruit and the guys who are tough, especially on that offensive line, for example, they're, they're going to go this year. If you look at the current projected starting five for BYU's offensive line, they're going to average six foot six in height and somewhere around 310 to 315 pounds across the board. That is all what Kalani Sitake is endeavored to do. He wants big, tough players and he just wants to make sure that when a team plays the Cougars, they remember how physical and how tough the Cougars were. One question that Oregon fans have about the defense going into this year, at least that I have, is really kind of on the edges. You got edge players without Kayvon Thibodeau, how much production you're going to get there. But the secondary is going to be essentially four new starters. Dante Manning was kind of a starter a year ago, but you're going to have Christian Gonzalez. You're going to have probably Dante Manning. The safeties, we really don't know at this point in time. So on the back end, it's a, at the very least going to be a unit that doesn't have a lot of chemistry, a lot of history, a lot of time playing together. Would you say that BYU's offensive attack when it comes to the passing game is going to be prolific enough to exploit that? Or do you think that that physicality is going to lend itself to a run first approach? Uh, I actually think the passing game might lead BYU, at least early on in the season. When they go to Oregon, which which is week three, September 17th, that passing game is probably going to lead the way, I think, in many ways. Because, yeah, Puka Nakua, the former Washington transfer, former four-star prospect, he's going to be BYU's lead receiver this year. He burst onto the scene down the stretch last year, very much broke out. He's going to be the lead guy this year. You have Gunnar Romney, who has been five years into his BYU career, has never had a fully healthy season. He's hoping to accomplish that here in 2020. Uh, both of those guys, should they have good seasons, could find themselves on their way to the NFL. They'll be the lead guys for BYU in the passing game with Jaron Hall tossing them the pill. But the other guy to keep an eye on, there's a big question mark about his health status after a dislocated ankle against USC, is Isaac Rex. Isaac Rex is your prototypical tight end. Six foot six, 255, 260 pounds. A guy who is just as good catching the ball as he is in the run game in terms of his blocking prowess. But if he's healthy, he makes BYU 
play you all the more dangerous. So if Oregon's got a young, inexperienced secondary, BYU will absolutely try to pick on it. Yeah, Christian Gonzalez is a little bit young, but not that inexperienced. He was all Pac-12 honorable mention last year for Colorado, but he'll be playing with with different guys alongside sure. him. But the, the back end... You have no Verone McKinley, who led the nation to interceptions a season ago. You have no Mikhail Wright, who's been an all-Pac-12 performer. DJ James transfers mm-hmm. and, and heads down to Auburn. So there's just a lot of a lot of turnover on, on the back end. But at the interior of the defensive line, I feel great about for the Ducks. You've got Brandon Dorless, Popo Amavai, who were the two highest-rated interior defensive linemen, according to PFF, in 2021. Then they added the number five player in that list, Sam Taimani from Washington. They've added a bunch of depth with Casey Rogers and Jordan Riley from uh, from Nebraska coming over with our new defensive line coach, Tony Tuioti. So I, I think they're really, really set there on, on the interior and the linebacking unit probably going to be the best Oregon's ever had if they're healthy. And and there have been some good ones. Like there have been some good players, but Noah Sewell, Justin Flo, you're talking about two NFL caliber first round draft picks. So I think they're, they're pretty set there, but where Oregon won a bunch of games a season ago was with the offensive line. Crystal ball wanted to run the ball. Anthony Brown wasn't pushing it down the field a ton. They won games because their offensive line was really good. George Moore is the only starter that they sent off to the NFL. Everybody else is back. Alex Forsyth, TJ Bass, Big Sala, uh, Stephen Jones as well, but Dawson Jaramillo who rotated in and out, Ryan Walk, like all, all these guys were basically the reason Oregon won 10 games, right? I, I think you look at the defensive stats from a season ago, they weren't that impressive. You look at the offensive stats and we know they struggled to push the ball down the field and were a little bit limited at, at quarterback and they didn't get the receivers involved a lot. And so when you ask, ask yourself the question, how did Oregon win 10 games? How did they win the Pac-12 North? The answer is the offensive line. So if the offense is not fully clicking for the Ducks and they have to rely on that offensive line to run the ball, kill some clock, and just kind of keep possession, how do you think BYU's front seven will match up against what could very well be Maybe I'm slightly biased because I'm a Duck fan. I, I, Utah might be close, but they might be the best offensive line in the Pac-12. Well, and that, that's a great question because BYU in 2021 essentially hit reset on their defensive line. They had Tyler Batty, who was a pretty decent player at defensive end, coming back, but the interior of their line. Kyrus Tonga went to the NFL. He's with the Chicago Bears. He actually played a lot more as a rookie than we all anticipated him playing. But they hit reset. A lot of young guys took over critical positions along that defensive line for BYU. They can go either four or a three-man front. It kind of just depends on the matchup. I would imagine against a team like Oregon where they like to run the ball, they probably would opt for that four-man front. Uh, the defensive line left a lot to be desired last year. Uh, I'll be frank when it comes to BYU. There's a lot of young, inexperienced players, some of them undersized. But if you believe the coaches and what they were saying during spring ball this year for BYU, those players hit the weight room really, really hard, and they look bigger. And with my own eyes, I'm out of enough practices. I can tell you the eyeball test tells me that they are, they are a bigger unit just in terms of overall size as a defensive line. They're a bigger unit, but the production, the, the overall ability to slow down opposing run games, it was a major, major weakness in the final weeks of the season for BYU a year ago, kind of the last half of the season. They're going to have to prove that they can do that early on the season because if they don't, it could be another long year for BYU allowing teams like Oregon with a very strong offensive line to control the clock, control the game, allow that ground game to really ground and pound them. They've got to avoid that because it was absolutely their Achilles heel a year ago. If BYU, this will be the last question that, that I'll ask you for now. If BYU pulls the upset, we look back and say, 
boy, they really did this thing that led to the, the victory. What do you think it is? I honestly think going toe-to-toe with the, the talent base that Oregon's got. I think anybody who pays attention to recruiting and just pays attention to the to football in the western part of the United States, the Pac-12 in particular, you know the recruiting prowess. We already talked about this. You talked about in your first answer that Oregon's had over the years. They recruit everybody. You mentioned Sam Taimani. He's a guy I called high school football games here in Utah. I, I, I've watched him. I've watched Noah Sewell. My younger brother played against Noah Sewell in high school. My younger brother said that the best player he's ever played in his entire life was Noah Sewell. He said nobody hit like this dude. He absolutely just made you feel him when he's on the field. So Oregon recruits at an extremely high level. BYU is going to hope to go toe-to-toe with them. And if they do that, BYU, I think, uh, will feel good if they can spring the upset against Oregon up there in Autzen because they went 5-0 and against the Pac-12 last year. They'd love nothing more than to continue that trend on into 2022. But Oregon's, uh, that talent base alone for Oregon, that's a daunting task if you're a Cougar. Yeah, Autzen's also a notoriously yeah. tough place oh, to yeah. win. They lost just one yeah. time during the Mario Cristobal era, and we don't we don't talk about that particular day in <laughs> in 2018. But um, yeah, anyway, I'll I'll hand the show back over to you now, Jake. Okay. Seeing as how this this is Locked On Cougars. Yeah. So uh, just a quick reminder: I want you guys to encourage you guys to get over to check out Locked On Big Twelve, the podcast. Spencer does Locked On uh, Pac-12 as well. They're they're conference shows that cover the conferences as a whole. BYU is obviously going into the Big Twelve. Josh Neighbors does an incredible job. Uh, covering all things Big 12. I want you guys to check that out. And also check out Locked On Pac-12, free and available wherever you get your podcast. All right, before we finish up here, Spencer, I want to talk a little bit, just kind of in more generalities with regards to the Pac-12. Obviously, there's a lot of talk around uh, BYU going into the Big 12. Will the Big 12 actually have conferences by the time they get there? We don't know that. We already know that literally minutes after the NCAA Division I Council said that they're getting rid of the requirement for divisions to allow a conference championship game, the Pac-12 said, we're doing away with that. We're going to have our top two teams, regardless of conference, regard, not conference, regardless of their division. division. We're going to have them in the, in the Pac-12 title game. Do you like that move? Where do you stand on this? I, I love it. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you look at the 11 Pac-12 championship games that have taken place since the conference was first formed in 2011, with the addition of Utah and Colorado, who have both done some really nice things and made appearances in that Pac-12 championship game. If this rule had been in place from the beginning, you would have had five, count them, one, two, three, four, five different matchups in the championship game. And, you know, the PAC 12 has a litany of issues across it right now. And some of those are the fault of uh, the former commissioner, Larry Scott. And some of those are not right. I mean, mm-hmm. USC being poorly run, not having the right coach. The commissioner has no control over that. He, he can't do those sorts of things, but there were also a variety of areas from a media rights perspective that Larry Scott did not do well. But this is probably the last gift he gave to the Pac-12 before his departure. Or, or sorry, the last gift he gave to the Pac-12 before his departure was moving the game to Las Vegas and got the ball roll got the ball rolling for what I I consider to be a massive upgrade in the quality of the championship game product the Pac-12 is putting on the field. Because this move here, with regards to getting rid of the regulation requiring divisions, allowing conferences to decide whether or not they want to have that format be how they determine the teams that will play in their championship game. It was pushed for by George Klyovkov, the new PAC 12 commissioner. He was the one who lobbied the NCAA and said, Hey, can we, can we just be left to decide this? If this conference wants to do it, okay, but we don't want to be forced into doing it because we don't like it. And it passed 
amongst the athletic directors and coaches in the Pac-12 conference unanimously. There were no votes against because this just makes so much sense. You're going to put the two best teams into the championship game, no matter what, which is a good look because you want to put on a nationally televised game, the best product that you have. And yes, six of the times the matchup would not have changed. So you had that anyway, right? But five of the 11, you were missing out on, on a potentially superior matchup. I think a couple of times it was splitting hairs. You know, it would have been like uh, one year, it would have been 13th ranked Washington state instead yeah. of, instead of like a 20th ranked Stanford team or, or something. Right. And so it wouldn't have been a, a huge gap, but then there were other years. Like look at 2011 USC was on probation, right? The very first PAC 12 championship game. Uh-huh. It was played at Autzen stadium, which is, you know, not a great look in and of itself that they came in. All right, we got the PAC 12 brand new conference, everything. Yeah. We're going to play the conference championship game at a team's home stadium. Like guys, come on, let's, let's be a little bit more prepared and on top of it, if we're going to make that sort of shift, but eventually they did. And, you know, Levi stadium just never had a great environment going to Vegas. I was down there in 2021. Let me tell you, that was a fantastic move in every single way. Putting it in Vegas, never a bad idea, whether it's the NFL draft an expansion team in the NHL expansion team in other leagues, moving the Raiders there, like everything just seems to work in Las Vegas. And so 2011 is the is the prime example of why you should have this rule in place. USC is on probation, so they're out. Instead, you get a six and six UCLA team. And Utah against. By the way, Utah would have made it had they beaten Colorado that year. That that's the crazy thing about this. Utah, the yep, very first yep, year in the yep, conference. That's that that's very true. And yeah. so, and I'm I'm glad the Utes were finally able to break through, even if it was against uh, my Ducks this past season. But I've got no animosity with Utah fans at all. Nothing, nothing but class from all of them when I was there. Uh, I mean, they were giving me some crap, but like it was all it was all good natured and friendly and fun and whatnot. And I I had a lot of fun, even though my team lost thirty eight to 10. So that doesn't happen very often. Props to the Utes faithful there. But 2011, instead of a six and six UCLA team, you would have had a rematch with Oregon and Stanford. Stanford was in the top 10. They had Andrew Luck. It was a game day game. Mm-hmm. You know, college game day was down in Palo Alto. I was at that game as well. You know, when it was uh, Darren Thomas and LaMichael James, Kenyon Barner, D'Anthony Thomas, that Oregon Rose Bowl championship team. It, it was it would have been such a better matchup oh, yeah. to have Oregon and Stanford, you know, whereas you see 10 and two Oregon and six and six UCLA and like, uh, okay. And yeah, UCLA put up a decent fight, but nobody needed, nobody needed to see that whether the game was a plated Autzen or a neutral site, it would have been better if you'd had the best matchup possible there. And that was Oregon and Stanford. And at the time, with USC kind of you know caught up in scandals and whatnot and starting to trend down as a program, that was the best matchup in the Pac-12 at the time. That was those were the two biggest brands. You had Andrew Luck at Stanford, who was going to be and was the number one pick in the NFL draft. And you had Chip Kelly at Oregon, who was going faster than most people could watch every time the Ducks got up to to snap the ball. Like that, those were the most identifiable teams in the conference. And so what this rule allows for is to put the best possible product on the field. And yeah, maybe it'll create a couple of rematches, but that adds to the hype. Mm-hmm. You, you want hype. You want interest. You want excitement. You want eyeballs on your championship game. And the next thing the PAC 12 needs to do is, you know, I feel like a, a politician or something like join the rest of the industrialized world and play your conference championship game on a Saturday. Yeah. Like it's played on a Friday night. And I'm just like, dude, Larry, that's what that's that's one of the biggest moves where I'm like Larry Scott. What are we doing? 
What are we doing? Why are we on a Friday? Big 12, Big 10, ACC, SEC, all on Saturday. There are non-powerful conferences playing on a Saturday. Like college football is made for a Saturday. Like, come on, man. But, you know, long, long story short, I like the rule. I think it makes a lot of sense. There's a reason it passed with unanimous consent, and it'll create the best matchup possible every year in your conference championship game. And, and on a league-wide basis, that's what you want to promote your conference. Well, the funny thing is I actually, I can't remember if it was 2011 or 2012. Long story, I actually found myself, I was at that, I was at Stanford uh, in Palo Alto to watch Stanford, Oregon play in a game between those two high-powered teams. And that was, I'll never forget that game. I think Oregon blew out Stanford, if I recall. Uh, I mean, they blew, I mean, they they pulled away at the end. You know, Stanford was down 14 with three minutes to go. That's so the game was. was mostly over. Yeah. They were driving and then a ball went off the receiver's hands. DeWitt Stuckey ran it back 35 yards for a touchdown. Yeah. So the final score was 53 to 30, but it was really like, it, it, it was a good, close competitive game. And then the ducks just pulled away a little bit at the end. But yeah, I, I was there too. And let me tell you, Jake, fun day. This should, yeah. You was an Oregon guy. Absolutely. You you were all about, it. I, that was the, the thing is I, my point is that absolutely should have been a rematch later that season. It feels like it would, it would have been fantastic, yeah. you know, and you had the, the other great thing that added to the intrigue of that matchup are the two contrasting styles. Yes. Stanford is old school, punch you in the mouth, uh-huh. big bruising backs, offensive linemen. This was pre Caffrey, mm-hmm. you know, it was the Stefan Taylors and Tyler Gaffney's of the world. They wanted to come in, run it down your throat, punch you in the mouth, and then make some solid plays in the passing game with their big tight ends, Toy Lolo and uh, yeah. Zach Ertz and all those sorts of guys they've had running through there. And and luck was really good, but wasn't asked to do, you know, a, a whole lot because their, their defense was good. And then yet on the other side, you had Oregon and they were going as fast as they possibly could. They were all about speed in their offense, in their players, in, in their style. Everything about it was just those two contrasting styles that I think made for such a really, really good football game. And, and it, it was for, for several years, Oregon and Stanford. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that even though Oregon won and went on to win the Rose bowl, which is like one of my favorite days ever and whatnot, as I look back and I'm like, it was a little ridiculous. They were playing six and six UCLA. <laughs> like, I mean, that's not, not, not what we were going for there. And, yeah. and, you know, even if think about this, even if USC had been, eligible right if they hadn't been sanctioned by the ncaa at the time one of oregon's losses the only pac-12 loss was to usc because alejandro malzonado can't make a 38 yard field goal or 42 (laughs) or whatever it was bottom line guy couldn't make a field goal in crunch time i think oregon would have loved to have another crack at usc the way they did with arizona in the 2014 season when they got to the college football playoff and the national championship game with Mariota. you lost to arizona tight at home but you held your own you locked down the fort for the rest of the season, and then it came back to the Pac-12 championship game. Yep. You blew them out of the water. I think that would have been a great feeling as well. So I think there's there's a lot of good things that come from having your two highest percentage, two highest conference winning percentage teams facing off no matter what division they're in. I think it's the right call. You're going to see everybody else move in that direction. It's highly logical. You want more takes like this? Make sure you check out Locked On Pac-12, but also follow Spencer's work, Locked On Ducks. Uh, Spencer, where can everybody else find all the rest of your work? I know that you work here in Utah. I don't know if you want to lift the lid on that a little bit, but feel free to kind of tell where everybody can find your work. 
Yeah, so you can uh, you can find me all over the ESPN app on, on ESPN+. Plus. I do all the TV play-by-play for Southern Utah University, so all their home events, you know, men's and women's basketball, everything ranging from that to uh, soccer and volleyball and softball and gymnastics as well. Yes, talking about gymnastics, I learned quite, quite a bit this year doing that, but they've got a, a, an incredible program. Scotty Baum and their head coach is absolutely amazing. He's been there 30-plus years and such, but, you know, you, you can find me there. Check me out on twitter at smalls underscore 55 and locked on ducks and locked on pack 12 are available on youtube and wherever you get your podcasts as well but jake it's been it's been a pleasure meeting you man hope to see you in person someday i should be up for the uh the southern utah utah game at at Eccles this year so maybe uh maybe i'll catch you out there uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen, absolutely. But I want to encourage everybody, thank you for making us your first listen of the day. Get over and check out the Locked On NBA Big Board Show. Actually, it's, it's NBA Big Board Show, period. Uh, Raphael Barlow does an incredible job. If you want to get ready for the NBA draft, check that wherever you get your podcast. Make that your second listen. Until next time, this has been Locked On Cougars and Locked On Ducks, a crossover edition. Have a great weekend.